The Daily 202 Podcast is brought to you by Indeed.com. Right now, small businesses have to be more efficient than ever, and that means every hire is critical. Indeed, the number one job site in the world, is here to help. Get a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash Daily 202. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through September 30th. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Friday, September 18th. In today's news, a federal judge temporarily blocks postal service changes amid concerns about voters being disenfranchised. Testing limits make it hard to tell how much the coronavirus is spreading silently among kids. And a black neighborhood in Florida's panhandle takes the hardest hit from Hurricane Sally. But first, the big idea. President Trump's response to the pandemic showed a flat-out disregard for human life because his main concern was the economy and his re-election. That is a direct quote from a senior advisor on the White House Coronavirus Task Force who left just last month. Olivia Troy, who worked as a Homeland Security counterterrorism and coronavirus advisor to Vice President Pence for two years, says the administration's response cost lives. And that's why she's voting for Joe Biden. She described her terrifying experience inside the Trump White House in an interview with our Josh Dossie. She said the president's rhetoric and his own attacks against people in his administration trying to do the hard work of keeping Americans safe, as well as the promulgation of false narratives and incorrect information about the virus, have made the government's ongoing response a failure. Olivia is the first Trump administration official who worked extensively on the coronavirus response to forcefully speak out on the record against Trump and his handling of the pandemic. She joins a growing number of former officials, including former National Security Advisor John Bolton and former Defense Secretary Jim Mattis, who have detailed their worries about what they saw when they were on the inside. The amount of criticism this president has faced from former aides is unprecedented. The White House, of course, as they always do, dismissed Olivia as nothing more than a disgruntled former employee. They also tried to inaccurately minimize her role on the task force and disputed her characterization that the pandemic response is not going well. Olivia is 43. She's worried about her career and her family. She's always been a behind-the-scenes person, an unseen sentinel in our national security apparatus working to keep us safe. But she's scared, scared for the future of the country. And she feels a moral obligation, after many sleepless nights, to go public, even if it doesn't move any votes. Olivia warned that she would be skeptical of any vaccine produced ahead of the election because she worries that its release will be due to political pressure. She explained that she would not tell anyone that she cares about to take a vaccine that launches prior to the election. She said it's worth waiting to make sure it's safe in other people and not just a political prop. Olivia has been a major participant in the task force's work, attending and helping to organize every single meeting it held from February through July. She worked closely with Pence on the response, including establishing the agenda for each meeting, preparing the vice president and arranging briefings for him, writing and editing his public comments, and dealing with his political aides. She was often pictured sitting against the back wall of the White House Situation Room near Pence during these meetings. It was her assistant, who would send the seating chart to officials across the administration for the meetings. Now, Olivia is a lifelong Republican. 
she started her career as a staffer for the Republican National Committee. But when she saw the Pentagon burning on September 11, 2001, she decided she needed to serve our country. She worked at the Pentagon as a George W. Bush political appointee and then became a career official at the Departments of Homeland Security and then Energy during the Obama administration before joining Pence's office in 2018 as an employee detailed from DHS. She said Trump usually was not focused on the virus, but would often blindside the task force and senior administration officials with his public comments, such as his support for the drug hydroxychloroquine, his skeptical comments about masks, and his public musings about herd immunity. Olivia says many of the Trump comments were the opposite of what had been discussed and agreed upon in the Situation Room and were at odds with scientific recommendations and the administration's own data. Trump rarely attended those task force meetings, she says, and was only briefed on top-level discussions by Pence. When Trump attended one of the meetings, she says he spoke for a solid 45 minutes about how poorly he was being treated by certain personalities on Fox News. She remembers him spending more time talking about who was going to call Fox and yell at them to set them straight than he did talking about the contagion. She said Trump even mused aloud that this virus could be good for him because it would mean that he didn't have to shake hands with disgusting people. She took that as a reference by him to his own supporters. Olivia said that she's had a lot of closed-door conversations with other senior people across the White House and the administration, where they agreed wholeheartedly with her perspective. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as this week comes to an end. Number one, the chief judge of the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Washington said last night that policies put in place under Trump's postmaster general, Louis DeJoy, will likely slow down delivery of ballots this fall, creating a, quote, substantial possibility that many voters will be disenfranchised and the states may not be able to effectively, timely, and accurately determine election outcomes. So he issued a temporary injunction. This is the first major decision to come out of several lawsuits filed by states against the Postal Service. They are worried about a concerted effort by Trump and DeJoy to impede the vote on November 3rd. In his written order, Judge Stanley Bastian laid out more than a page of specific prohibitions on the Postal Service until a final judgment is reached in the case. These restrictions could broadly affect the agency's services. He connected the USPS policies to Trump's larger broadsides against mail voting, saying that taken together, the actions amount to voter disenfranchisement. Meanwhile, our Aaron Davis has a new story this morning about a pattern of campaign contributions by former employees and family members of DeJoy that indicate a possible effort to reimburse his associates for federal donations as recently as 2018. This, of course, would be a serious crime, though DeJoy denies any wrongdoing. Also, through a Freedom of Information Act request, we have gotten our hands on nearly 10,000 pages of internal emails and memos from inside the Postal Service that shed new light on just how bad it is on the inside. The documents, which mostly span March and April, depict an agency in distress as its deteriorating finances collided with a public health emergency and a looming election that would be heavily reliant on absentee ballots. During this period, the USPS turned for legal guidance to several well-connected Republicans, among them Stefan Passantino, who recently served as a top White House lawyer under Trump. Now, he's also 
the leader of a pro-Trump legal coalition that's been preparing for the possibility of a contested election. His role has not been previously reported until now. The relationship raises a host of serious ethical red flags. But that's actually not the most unsettling thing that we found in the tranche of emails. Back in April, USPS leadership drafted a press release announcing plans to distribute 650 million masks nationwide. The document, which includes quotations from top Postal Service officials and a range of specifics, was never sent. The idea for sending out the masks originated at the Department of Health and Human Services, which suggested a pack of five reusable masks be sent to every residential address in the country. The first shipments would have gone to the hardest hit areas. At the time, the CDC had been working on coronavirus guidance that recommended face coverings, a reversal of its previous position, in the face of mounting evidence that people could spread the virus without experiencing symptoms. The Postal Service identified Orleans and Jefferson's Parish in Louisiana as the first place that would receive the coverings, and then shortly thereafter to King County in Washington, Wayne County in Michigan, and New York City. But right before the news release was supposed to be sent, the Trump White House nixed the plan. Senior administration officials confirmed that this happened. One administration official says the plan was scrapped because there was concern on the White House Domestic Policy Council and by the vice president that households receiving masks might create concern or panic about how bad the virus really was. In retrospect, that decision almost certainly caused more Americans to die than would have otherwise. Nearly 200,000 Americans have now perished from COVID, the worst death toll of any country in the world. Number two, that heavily criticized recommendation from the CDC last month about who should be tested for the coronavirus was not actually written by CDC scientists. It was posted to the agency's website despite their strenuous objections. The guidance said that it's no longer necessary to test people without symptoms of COVID, even if they've been directly exposed to people who have the virus. Internal documents that were leaked to the New York Times show that Trump political appointees at HHS did the rewriting and then dropped that guidance onto the CDC's public website, flouting the agency's strict scientific review process. Meanwhile, Trump increasing his attacks on government scientists continues to undermine public confidence in any vaccine. On Wednesday, Trump said before a televised audience that the results are looking very good for the vaccines targeting the virus. But then yesterday, the CEOs of Moderna and Pfizer, two frontrunner drug companies who are trying to develop a shot, released the full rule books for their studies, revealing that no one yet knows conclusively whether their vaccines are safe or effective, not even the CEOs. Leaders of Moderna and Pfizer cited the need for greater transparency than usual in clinical trials as the reason behind their decision to release all this documentation describing how their studies are measuring safety and effectiveness. The documents confirm that study participants, physicians running the trials, and the companies themselves are blinded, meaning that they're unable to tell who received a real vaccine and who received a placebo. So it's impossible for Trump to be able to describe the results as promising because he would not know. Meanwhile, as preschools, elementary schools, and daycares welcome returning children nationwide, researchers have been hoping to learn more about the transmission of the coronavirus among younger children. But their efforts to screen kids may be hindered by several factors. Age limits at certain testing sites, fear 
or discomfort from swab testing, and the tendency for children to not exhibit signs of infection, making them less likely to qualify for immediate testing. And then we keep getting reports like this. A Massachusetts teenager was able to get a test, and he tested positive. But then his parents decided to send him to school anyway. Now, 28 of his classmates who were in close contact with the boy have to quarantine for two weeks. And one of the fans who attended last week's NFL season opener between the Chiefs and the Texans subsequently tested positive, leading the Kansas City Health Department to direct 10 people to quarantine because they sat next to him for hours. Meanwhile, Florida, Texas, and Nevada are taking steps this weekend toward reopening for the second time. In Texas, Governor Greg Abbott announced that restaurants, retail stores, and gyms in almost every part of the state can resume operating at 75% capacity, but he ordered that bars remain closed. Florida is also plowing ahead with reopening, allowing bars statewide to reopen at 50% capacity. And in Nevada, a state task force has just authorized the reopening of bars in Las Vegas. Number three, a black neighborhood in Florida's panhandle, unfortified against the storms, took a devastating hit from Hurricane Sally. The fortified downtown area of Pensacola, where the affluent whites live, has received significant attention in hurricane proofing in recent years. It saw significant flooding this week, but its high waters receded quickly as the storm passed early Wednesday and the tide went out. Wedgwood, on the other hand, is nearly defenseless against storm surges off the Gulf of Mexico, and its waters do not go away so quickly. Ashley Cusick reports for us that Wedgwood faces another challenge. It is surrounded by landfills and a giant sand pit, which have long caused residents to raise health concerns and also have served to channel water toward the homes of residents. And as the terrible megafires continue burning out west, there are reminders everywhere of just how arbitrary and capricious these natural disasters can be. My colleague Scott Wilson went for a drive around Oregon and relays that roads across the state are now splashed with pink flame retardant. The pink retardant has stained roads between burned down homes. Close to a million acres have now burned in Oregon, and the fires moved so fast that they overwhelmed cars in the small cities of Talent and Phoenix. Those two towns have about 11,000 residents total. Whole neighborhoods on one side of the North Pacific Highway in the town of Talent are totally unscathed. But just across the highway, everything is in ruins. And the only hotel in town, the Goodnight Inn, is gone. And that's The Daily 202 for Friday, September 18th. Thanks for listening. Our show is produced by Ariel Plotnik, and our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you on Monday.